Well, good morning again. Thank you guys for gathering here this morning and uh, for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And if I've not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie, and it's my great joy, it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint and to get to dive into our text this morning as we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. It's this series called The Way of the King, and we're exploring what it looks like when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to, the king comes on the scene and begins to take his world back. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus said this, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, which simply means to move in a new direction. We've been going one way, and the king is here, and we're like, we're being summoned to move in a new direction, to follow him, and it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the Sermon on the Mount is this declaration of what it looks like when the king takes his world back. And there's challenge in this, there's a lot of comfort in this, Uh, there's some difficult words of Jesus which we're gonna get into uh, this morning, Uh, but in it know this, that there's a God that is pursuing us, that he wants to lavish us with his grace, so even in these moments where we might feel a particular tension, just know, as we read in that assurance of pardon just a moment ago, that there's a God that's rejoicing over you with loud singing because of the work of Jesus. So regardless of what you brought in here this morning, there's a God that wants to meet you in your despair, in your brokenness, in your anxiety, in the things even that you're celebrating, whatever it happens to be, there's a God that is at work. And if you doubt that even for a moment this morning, you're like, ah, I don't know if that, that's true. The fact that you're here this morning is testament, testament to the fact that God is at work and God wants to meet you and me in this place this morning. And so we are gonna be in Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at verses 31 to 37. And it's our practice to regularly just preach through either large sections of scripture or through whole books of the Bible. And we want you to be able to follow along. You don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God's word. And so to have that in front of you is very, very helpful. And so turn there if you brought a Bible. If you didn't, there's paperback Bibles on the back tables there. Get up, grab one of those. You can find the text on page 899. You also can make use of going to cpwp.life. Swipe over the second card, says message notes. Information that's up on the screen this morning will be there. So you can follow along the space to take notes, email it to yourself afterwards, those sorts of things. So make use of that. But I wanna go ahead and read these verses. We've been journeying through. Jesus has come on the scene and he's been basically calling people and saying, listen, you've heard it said for centuries one particular way, but now I say to you, he's speaking with authority. He's calling us to what it looks like when we live under the rule and reign of who he is as the king. And so this morning, Jesus is gonna speak about the topic of divorce and of oaths. And so beginning in verse 31, as I read this, would you go ahead and stand if you're able? I wanna read God's word as we get going. Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 31. Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so in this, 
If you're already feeling some sort of tension here with what Jesus says, like I think that's just a normal response. There's some hard things in this particular passage. This is, again, why I want you to know this. Like God has given to us his word and we are to study all of it, all right? We're to make our way through it. We're not to skip around and say, well, you know, this, I don't really feel like talking about this, that God in his grace has given us his word. And so God in his grace has given us this passage on this particular day with you being gathered here, all right? So God wants to speak to us this morning. And so there can be a tendency sometimes to just like, hey, we're gonna just kind of pick and choose what we wanna preach. And this is why we regularly wanna preach through books of the Bible or long sections of the scriptures like we see here in the Sermon on the Mount because I don't get the luxury of sort of skipping over it, that there's difficulty here present in this text and you probably feel it because here's the reality. Jesus starts out right away and starts talking about divorce. Every single person in this room has been affected by that reality in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you've been divorced, maybe your parents got divorced, close friends, family members have been divorced, all right? Maybe you're dating somebody that's been divorced, maybe you've gotten remarried to somebody that was divorced. I mean, the reality is there's just this ripple effect and we all feel it. And so Jesus speaks these words and as we get into this this morning, what we're gonna be looking at is this overall theme, even the way that they're woven together of both Talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, but also oaths. What does it mean to like hold true to our promises? All of this is this issue of faithfulness. So I want to spend a bulk of our time in these first couple of verses about faithfulness in marriage. We're going to talk about the oaths part as well, but I believe it flows out of this. But I want to read you something I found very, very helpful this week, just in my own preparation and study. John Stott, who's a theologian, pastor, um, wrote a commentary, a brilliant commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And when he came to this section, let me just read you this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to hear a pastor's heart in this. As he's thinking about writing commentary on Jesus' words, which is always kind of a terrifying thing, right? Like Jesus said, it, I'm gonna comment on it now, right? And so we're, we're diving into this. Here's what he said in regards to verses 31 to 32. He says, I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness and discord and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, he says, for I know the pain which many suffer and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for the individuals, good for society, he says, that I take my courage in both hands and I write on. And in many ways, that needs to be the posture here this morning as we get into this and we acknowledge this is a complex subject and we acknowledge that it's not one that is just devoid. It doesn't stay in the realm of just kind of like intellectual discussion, philosophical discussion. Like it has an impact on the ground in your life and in my life. And so I wanna spend some time here just sort of unpacking the things that Jesus is talking about both here in these couple of verses, but also later in the book of Matthew as he gives kind of a further exposition of what he was driving at here in chapter five. And so right out of the gate, there's this reference we need to understand culturally. If we're gonna even make sense of why Jesus is saying the things that he's doing, he speaks of 
the, this certificate that's been given. And so in 31, you hear this. It was also said, if someone divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, remember, track with me. If you've been here for any number of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, so much of what Jesus is doing is saying, you are not a people that aren't out there doing things. He's like, the question is, what's going on at a heart level? Like we're gonna see in the next couple weeks even where Jesus is talking to us about prayer or fasting. And it's not a call between those who are not praying and those who are. It's like, hey, we're all praying, but what's actually happening? Is it external sort of focus and righteousness? And where this is taking place, when this is taking place, you had a group of people that were like, hey, as long as I issue a certificate, I'm in the clear, all right? As long as I just give this piece of paper, this certificate to this woman, I can literally walk away from the marriage at any point, at any time, virtually for any reason. And they would actually lay their head down on the pillow at night and feel good about themselves because they're like, hey, I'm not like those pagans that didn't issue a certificate of divorce. I actually did it. I followed the rules. I did the right thing. And this goes back to this, it's been this ancient practice from hundreds of years, all right? It's a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we don't have time to deep dive into this, but I just wanna show it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one to four. There's a lot here, but just pay attention. This is where this idea of certificate comes up. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, we're gonna come back to that phrase because that left it in the realm of a lot of different interpretations. What does that mean? Some indecency, all right? This is where people began issuing these certificates at a very rapid rate. He says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, he may actually not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, there's a ton in there. There's a lot of words like abomination. What are we talking about here, okay? Just know this. This was put into place, Jesus is gonna tell us, all right, as a means of protection for women who were oftentimes just viewed as property and they were just to be discarded, even there were men strategically that were so sick, all right, in the heart and in the head that would be like, I'm gonna marry this woman, I'm gonna get the dowry, meaning I'm gonna get the gift from the bride's uh, father, all right, it was usually a significant amount, and if I divorce her, all right, then I actually get that, and if I can remarry her later on, like, I'll get kind of a second gift, all right, it's like a registry all over again, all right, he's like, more gifts for me. It's like Jesus is telling us, no, 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 the reason this was put in place is for this progressive work to protect women. They're made in the image and likeness of God. This is terrible what is happening. So now you jump ahead to when Jesus is preaching this in Matthew 5, and there are different schools amongst the religious leaders, all right? And there's groups of people that are coming up to him, and there in the crowd would have been people that would have been more liberal and more conservative on these particular issues, all right? And so the Hillel group was a very liberal group. It's how they interpreted that phrase, he found some indecency. Let me tell you what practically historians would say this looked like. A man could issue a certificate of divorce if he's like, that woman, she burned my food. She burned dinner. Can you believe the audacity of that? Further, there was too much salt in it. These are things that people legitimately would say. It's not really legitimate, right? But this is what historically happened. They'd be like, she burned my food. There's too much salt in it. Or things like, I saw this other woman. And she is a little bit younger. She's in a little bit better shape. Um, I'm going to like trade out my current wife for her. 
as long as you issue the certificate of divorce, this group of people were like, hey, way to go, brother, all right? Get you some good dinner, get a younger wife, whatever, whatever it takes, right? As long as you give this external form of righteousness, you're in the clear. So that's one group. But you also had this other group, that was very, this Shammai group, very, very conservative. Practically, here's what this might look like. Some of you maybe grew up in this sort of tradition where even marriage was viewed as a sacrament. Oftentimes this is in Catholic traditions, all right? We don't believe that to be true. We believe marriage to be very, very important as we're gonna see, but it's not baptism. It's not communion, the Lord's Supper. And there's groups of thought. There's groups of churches and people down through the ages that have even spoken of divorce in such a way that it's an unforgivable sin. And so maybe this is part of your story and you're walking in wondering, am I just gonna be lambasted with just sort of this condemnation this morning? Am I gonna be part of this, this church that's, that's saying basically like, no, this is terrible. I can't believe that you would do that. And that is not the storyline of the scriptures either. There are ways that divorce is sin for sure, but sin is can be forgiven, it can be repented of. We need to feel that reality, to know that. One of the things I came across this week, and I'd never seen this before, and I thought, wow, this is a great picture of our God as he's talking about his pursuit of the nation of Israel. And oftentimes, if you read through the scriptures, you will see that God refers to himself as this husband and Israel, all right, who he took as his bride has been wayward. She's been adulterous. She's just run off in pursuit of other gods, really the language of other lovers. And yet God's continual pursuit. But there also is this spot in Jeremiah chapter three. So if there's any bit of you this morning that's feeling self-righteous and you're like, I can't believe those people like got divorced. Well, look how God identifies himself in Jeremiah 3, eight. He says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of door. So there's that language again and sent her away because of her adulteries. That there's a God here in this relationship that even identifies himself as one who's issued a divorce certificate. So if you think for a moment that like God can't relate or somehow God is up there just wanting to speak words of condemnation, I think we're missing the storyline of the Bible. And so that's what's going on initially with this certificate. Now, what Jesus does is he wants to press in and move us past just the external. What is going on at a heart level? And there's an internal heart issue that you have and that I have. Regardless of how close you are to this particular topic, this is true regardless. And so in Matthew chapter 19, let me read to you a couple of verses. This is where Jesus gives further explanation of what he says here in Matthew chapter five. You can read about this in Mark chapter 10 as well. There's a very similar account. But in Matthew 19, Jesus makes reference back to this certificate. So this group of religious leaders come up to him. They say, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus says, okay, you asked this question, let me give you a response. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What is Jesus doing here? He's saying, can we stop focusing on the external and the certificate? All of that was a concession that is never how God designed things to be. And really that was given because there's such a hardness of heart. There's such a wickedness that exists in my heart and your heart and people down through the ages that we're always looking out for us, right? What will please me? What will satisfy me? Not a how can I give more to this other person? How can I walk out this covenant? But rather, what is this person gonna do for me? Is my dinner gonna be good? As you'd 
see people divorcing over things like that or any sort of reason like, oh, I'm not completely satisfied in this, therefore I'm gonna hit the eject button and move on to someone else. Jesus says it was there because of the hardness of heart. So let's stop talking about the external for a moment. Can we just focus on the issue that is a heart issue? That's what Jesus is pressing over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. There's this quote by this guy who's an ethicist at Duke University named Stanley Hauerwas. And in it, um, this is referenced in a book called The Meaning of Marriage, this particular quote. And I've read this. I'm going to read it to you in a moment. I've read it sometimes, not just in a church service, but I've read it in officiating people's weddings. Um, and in it, he says, you always marry the wrong person, which just goes over splendidly when you're gathered there, right, um, at a wedding, and I'm standing before the, the couple, right, and everyone's, and, I'm, and I say that to them, and it's just like, Wait, what, what is it? why did we hire this bozo to do the wedding, right? Like there's all these sorts of probably responses, but the quote I believe is super helpful because it gets at this issue of what's going on at a heart level. Whether you're married or not, the reality is we've got heart issues that need to be wrestled with and Jesus in his love and in his care for us gives us the Sermon on the Mount so we would stop focusing on the external and deal with the matters of the heart. Because there's something within us that just wants what's in it for me. Will this help me? Will this advance my career? Will this advance how I feel about myself, my self-esteem? All of this sort of nonsense. So here's the quote. He says this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become, quote, whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we would look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption, he says, that overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? He continues in this to unpack that a bit because there is something right at a heart level where we're looking for self-fulfillment all right, we're thinking this other person is there to make me feel good, to prop me up so that I can do what I want in life. If I'm gonna be whole, if I'm gonna be happy, if I'm gonna have that person that completes me, right? That sort of narrative that's out there. And he's like, whoa, 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 you always marry the wrong person. Here's what he means by that. He says, we actually never know whom we marry. We just think that we do. Or even if we first marry the, quote, right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of, me, of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. What, what's he talking about? He's saying there's something that happens, all right? Hopefully you know the person fairly well. Hopefully you're not just walking into it like completely ignorant, right? Like you've never talked to the person before. Like we would advocate for, for time spent and all of that. But there's a level, I'll share it for me. There's a level for me that once I got married, I started to see, all right, the level of selfishness that existed. It was always there, but there's something about even this particular relationship and the closeness of it that is like this mirror being held up. And it's like, oh, hey, by the way, you thought you were somewhat selfish. You've only scratched the surface. I'm going to show you how deep the problem actually goes. And so if we're looking for this person to fulfill us, we're actually missing out on what God would have for us. There's this call to pay attention to the heart, pay attention to what new relationships, even in general, reveal. This need of grace, this need of the gospel. And so how do you actually view relationships? And Jesus is like, I don't want you to focus on the external. Let's press in. 
And Jesus in Matthew 19 then continues and he gives us this vision. In the verses that preceded this text about a hard heart, he says this in Matthew 19, three to six then. The Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So there's that question again, right? Conservative, liberal, where do you land? Jesus, we wanna know what you think. They're trying to trap him. What does Jesus do? He doesn't play their silly games. He doesn't say, you know, this group got it right or this group needs to tweak this a little bit and you know what, you can divorce if the food is burned but the salt issue needs to go away. Or like, right? He doesn't enter into that. He says, I need to tell you about my vision from the very beginning about marriage. And he says this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He uses this language here, maybe you've heard this, right? To, to leave and to cleave. It's this covenantal language. When you, if you're married and you stood up there and you made your vows, you were not just making a promise for that day when everything was perfect and orderly and everybody was there to basically just like, ooh and ah over you. What you were doing was making a promise and a commitment in this covenantal sense of I promise to pursue you, to love you, to care for you, to move towards you, not just right now when everything is amazing and there's this epic party that we're throwing all together, but when things are hard and things are difficult and off in the future on a day that I can't even anticipate, I promise I'm with you right now. That's the language here that Jesus is speaking. There's this oneness that happens. That's what he's driving at, all right? And so he's telling him, this is the vision I need you to have for marriage. You're wanting to ask about the fine print and, right, like when can I get out of this contract as if it's like your cell phone, all right? Oh, do I have to, when do I have to pay this early termination fee? Like stop it and realize that there's something more that God has for you. Do you have a vision for a flourishing marriage? Now that doesn't mean it's easy, Go back to the Hauerwas quote, right? Like, oh my goodness, there's so much stuff that that's revealing to me. But Jesus says from the very beginning, and the language here, I think it's helpful to think about it, is there's both a priority and there's a power to this relationship. There's a priority because Jesus didn't just put two friends in the garden, all right? It says male and female, and then they're united. That's a husband and a wife. It's this first marriage. There's a priority to that. We know this, right, because Jesus created Adam and he created lots of animals and he looked out and says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone even though he had lots of pets and th things like that, right? It's like there's something that God is doing that's unique. There's a priority. But there's also, there's a power in this. It's why Jesus calls them to press in. He knows the significance of it. He knows that it's meant to put on display the love that God has for his people that ultimately your marriage isn't just, it isn't really even about you. It's about putting on display grace and mercy and care. It's to put on display for a watching world a bit about who God actually is and what it looks like when he pursues us as his wayward people, all of the, those things. And there's this power, there's this gravitas, there's a significance to it. In a sermon on this particular topic and passage, Tim Keller said this, and I love the way he explains this. He says, marriage has the power, I think you would know this to be true, has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. Think about this. If your marriage is weak and yet every other way you're surrounded with strength, it doesn't matter. You will move out into your world in weakness. If your marriage is strong and everything around you is weak, right? Like it's just everything else seemingly is falling apart. It doesn't matter. You move out into the world in strength. 
I believe if I could sit down with you and we could talk about your marriage and those things, I think you would echo, yeah, this by and large has played out. This is, this is true. So there's this priority, there's this power. And Jesus is saying, let's stop looking at how I can get out of this, but rather what he intended from the very beginning. Now, in that, all right, I think we need to keep moving along here. Um, Jesus does say, though, there are times when divorce is justified. The language is never that it's commanded, all right? It doesn't mean if somebody does something, if a spouse sins in a particular way where it would justify the divorce, that you are commanded by God to leave the person. That's never what the scriptures say, all right? And yet at the same time, there is this, hey, in light of the brokenness and the fallenness and the hard-heartedness of, of people and the ways that we sin against one another and some of the, the ways that we are supposed to have been one and that has been like torn apart and we're not operating with any sort of oneness and it grieves the heart of God and we would never say that it's amazing or awesome, but there are cases in which, listen, divorce is justified. There's cases, I would say, even that divorce is the thing like, even though it might be like, oh, I can't believe that this is happening, that in some cases it's even the right thing to do. But here's what I wanna encourage you in. I should have said this on the front end. Jesus gives us these couple words. We're spending a few moments on this. This is not some big position paper. We're gonna, you know, I'm gonna read 30 pages to you of like every detail and every nuance and all of that. This is a, just an overall framework. How should we even think about these things? And so one of the things that we need to see in the scriptures, Jesus referenced one of them here in Matthew chapter five. He says, except in the case of sexual morality, the word there is porneia, all right? You can see where that would get translated in today, like pornography, that, that sort of language that's being used there. And it's a wide kind of very, it, has, it encompasses a wide range of things. And Jesus is saying, hey, in this case, these cases of sexual morality, though it's never a great thing, there's permission to move forward with divorce. Paul, the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, around verse 15, some of the surrounding areas even speaks of another reason in this idea of desertion where somebody's just simply abandoned the covenant. So you think through those, those things. Here's what I wanna encourage you in this. And the reason, let me explain this image, all right? You see there in the picture, right? You've got the catcher and you've got the umpire. The umpire is this impartial, best as, best as they can be, third party, all right, that is calling balls and strikes, that is there to speak into a particular situation. What I would commend you, encourage you, if you find yourself in this spot, or if you find it like, hey, there's good friends of mine that they're in this spot, is a space to step in and to welcome somebody to help speak into the situation. This is where the church is called to be. Now, it's not this infallible rule on high, but listen, there's a complexity to this that you need somebody to step in. You don't get to be the umpire for what's going on in your life. Like, it's like we're too enmeshed and entwined. It's hard to make sense of things. Like, invite somebody else to speak into it. It doesn't mean that they'll get it perfectly right, but it can help us see. It can help us see our blind spots. It can cause us to put the brakes on for a moment and say, okay, what would it look like to see this redeemed? Is redemption possible in this? Even if you have justified reasons for divorce. 
And some of you are gonna have friends that are gonna wanna step in and do this and their heart is in a good place and I'm gonna ask you to receive that from them, all right? The tendency will wanna be to get in a huff and be like, you don't know my situation in this and just leave me alone. But there's a friend that's coming alongside and saying, I do care about you. And they're not gonna say everything perfectly and they're not gonna nuance it perfectly and they're not gonna perfectly understand your situation, but they're stepping in as somebody say, can we just walk through this together? And so this isn't meant to be like, hey, I've got some situation, how, how does this speak to it? What's the answer, Can I just, am I justified in this? It has to happen in the context of conversation, in the context of the local church, if you're a follower of Jesus. And so there are cases where it's justified. Sexual morality, desertion. I would say, some of you, I should put this up there as well, like, you're like, hey, I got divorced and I wasn't a follower of Jesus at the, the time and I've been remarried. What does that, what does that mean? I'd say that that is justified, that is good. Even when Jesus says, hey, you go and marry somebody, you didn't have justified reason, all right? He says it's as if you're committing adultery. Why? Because you're still married to somebody else. Well, does that mean then you leave the second marriage and now you're compounding it? No. It's not this ongoing adultery. He's like, but just take it seriously. There's a covenant, there's a oneness. Now, I don't pretend that that just solves everything. Everything is perfectly clear, right? We can, we can move on. But these are things that Jesus wants us to consider, that there's a vision that he has for marriage. And he's telling us, and he's encouraging us. We see this throughout the scriptures. This is why the apostle Paul speaks in, and he writes the things that he does in 1 Corinthians, because we need somebody else to help us in this. Now look with me for a moment at verses 33 to 37. There's this overall theme, right, of just faithfulness. Will we be faithful in relationships? Will we be faithful in marriage? Will we cling to the grace of God? 33 to 37, Jesus says, hey, there's this tendency that we make promises then we don't follow through. And so he says in 33, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Again, he's like, hey, people would make promises. I swear to this, or I swear on this, all right? I'm going to do this thing. It would be a way to showcase, like, I'm really serious now. And she's like, why do we have to do that at all? The fact that we swear, meaning like, I promise to do this thing, I swear on this, is because we live in a world and a culture of lies and a deception. And so we have to ramp it up and say, okay, this isn't just like a normal thing. I really, really mean it this time. And Jesus is like, what if your yes could just be yes and your no could just be no? So that's why he says, you've actually, this is how it's been, all right, but I say to you, how about do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Do you know what Jesus is doing right there? He's like, listen, you've got all sorts of things that you're swearing by, and he's like, okay, great. You're swearing by this, you're swearing by that, you're swearing by the temple, you're swearing by the gold in the temple. He'll address the Pharisees later on in the book of Matthew. He's like, if everything comes from me anyway, all right, like it all points back to me. So let's just stop with this nonsense of swearing by all of these things. And what if we as the church demonstrated what it looks like to live with a commitment to our word that we will do what we said that we would do, that we will strive to be people of faithfulness, that we will strive by the grace of God to follow through. We're not going to do it perfectly, but that there would be this commitment. We wouldn't have to say, Oh, I swear by this, I really, really mean it this time. 
You can see why Jesus, I think, even talks of this right after marriage. I mean, look, look how he sandwiches this, all right? Right prior to this, Eric preached on this last week, is the, the topic of lust and adultery, like those sorts of things. And then he goes right into the section on divorce and then follows it with this talk here of oaths. Will we be a people of our word in a culture of deception? You don't have to read very far in the Bible to see how this plagues just who we are as people. I mean, you could think about it this way. Like, we come from a long lineage of liars and deception. I mean, go look at just one family, right? We don't have time to go look at all of this, but like Abraham, all right? Founder of the, you know, like God calls him, Father Abraham, right? Jewish people come from him, all this sort of amazing things, except he keeps ending up in foreign countries and being like, hey, hey, to his wife. He's like, tell them you're my sister, right? And so these guys, these foreign rulers end up taking her, like over and over again, he does this. And not just on one occasion, he does it a couple of different times. Like you think he would learn his lesson, all right? Then you have later on, you've got Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, and Jacob tricks his brother Esau. He also tricks his, brother, or tricks his father Isaac to, to get all of the benefit, the blessing that would have come to the older son. Eventually, this Jacob has these other has these other sons. One of them is Joseph, Joseph's brothers, sell him into slavery, all right? They pretend that he's actually been killed by a wild animal. Like, there's all this stuff. If you read some of these Bible stories, you're like, oh my goodness, there's been so much deception. And we're only a few chapters into this story. Jesus is saying, listen, that's the world. That's how it is. And it plagues the people of God. But could we be a people that actually follow through, that we don't give in to the ways of deception, that we don't give in to what happened in Genesis 3 where there was a serpent, this deceiver, that came and twisted the words of God? Jesus speaks this in Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Woe to you, he says, blind guys. He's calling out the religious leaders who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, he says, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. Do you see what's happening? They're trying to create loopholes. They're trying to create fine print. Oh, you didn't see that? Oh, well, here's what I actually meant. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. It's Jesus' way of asking us this. Do you remember this as, as a young kid, all right, um, that you would make somebody a promise, all right? Do you remember this, all right? And then it would come back and they'd be like, why didn't you do that thing? Oh, I'm sorry, um, I had my fingers crossed, right? They're behind your back. Oh, sorry, I'm out of it. No matter what I said, what I promised, I don't know if that's still a thing amongst younger generations, right? But that was definitely a thing. I used that all the time. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, right? Fingers were crossed. Jesus is like, really? <laughs> like, why, why would we operate with this mindset, right? Like, we might under, understand that so younger kids might give in that. And he's like, okay, that's not great either. But why are we going through life this way? He's like, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Because faithfulness is hard. There's a wickedness in our heart, right, where we are looking at, there's this self-fulfillment ethic. It shows up in all kinds of relationships, certainly marriage, but in other areas of life as well. In our careers, all of us, I want to ask you, like, is this you? Are you doing that in your marriage? I made these vows, but I didn't really mean it, or I'm looking for the escape clause or how I can get out of it. What about in just relationships in general? How are you operating? How are you doing this in the workplace? 
Are you honest? Are you, do you have integrity? Is there a wholeness about you? What about your commitment? If you're a follower of Jesus, there's no verse that says you shall be committed to Cross Point Winter Park. I haven't found that verse yet. But there is a theme and a command in the scriptures to be connected, involved in a local church into a body of believers. Now, if it's here, awesome, great. We want to help you get plugged in. But if, as a follower of Jesus, you're not called to be this independent entity. That's not the way the scriptures speak of it. There's this call to be in this covenantal community of faith together. And yet, even in that, I think sometimes we kind of do the fingers crossed thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I gave lip service to it, but I'm not really all in. What does that look like? What might the Lord be calling you to to move past simply just this lip service? Say, no, like I'm in, I bleed with these people. These are my brothers and sisters. It's not like a family, it actually is a family. And so are we going to suffer with one another? Are we gonna celebrate with one another? Are we going to say difficult things to one another and yet also walk alongside? Because if there's anything in here like that Jesus, I think, would rail against too, it's those that would come on their high horse and be like, how dare you get divorced? How dare you think about that? I'm gonna peace out and go out the rest of my life and not walk with you in the difficulty. So he's asking us, don't, he's calling us to something more than just fingers crossed. So let's close with this. The beautiful thing in all of this, amidst the difficulty, what Jesus is showcasing for us time and time again is the faithfulness of the king. There's a way that Jesus perfectly embodies his yes was his yes. I mean, you think about this. If we were to go back and read in Genesis chapter three, God made a promise in the midst of the curses and the rebellion that has just taken place with Adam and Eve and the serpent and all of, the, all of these things. God says, I promise you, Hear me, he says, I promise you one day, I'm not gonna tell you exactly when it's gonna happen, but I promise you that one day from the seed of the woman will come one that will crush the head of the serpent, that will do away with Satan, sin, and death. I promise you that's going to happen. And so for the Jewish people down through the centuries, they held on to this promise, even amidst their rebellion, their adultery, their spiritual waywardness, all of it, wondering, would God be faithful? In the midst of exile, difficulty, wondering if God had abandoned them, right? Wondering if they'd ever be welcomed in, they held on to this promise, and God has been true to his word, that he would send his son, Jesus. That's why the apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God. So you start there in Genesis 3.15 and you make your way through the Old Testament, everything finds their yes in Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our, and Paul uses this word, amen. Let it be so. It is so. I declare it to be, not because of I'm making this up, but this is what we've experienced in Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God gets the glory when we realize as well that he has sent his son who's been completely faithful. When I was faithless, when you were faithless, when we pursued other things, when we did not give our affection to God as he deserved, but rather gave our time, energy, affections to something other than God, less than God. The Bible calls it idolatry. All of that, God sent his son, born of a woman who perf perfectly fulfilled the law, died the death that you deserve and that I deserve. And three days later, rose from the dead. This is why Paul would write then to young Timothy, we'll close with this. He says, remember, this is chapter two, verses eight to 13. He's like, remember Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't think for a moment 
that it's like somebody maybe you just meet for the first time and you, can't, you haven't quite lodged it in your mind of like name, recognition, face, putting those two together. He's not like, hey, do you remember that guy, Jesus? What? I think so. Well, who is it again? His call here is remember the gospel. Remember the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. What? Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, which means he's part of this long line of promises as, prescribed, as preached in my gospel. And Paul says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see what he's saying? He's like, there's a tendency for us to be faithless people. There's a tendency for us to be forgetful people. There's a tendency for us to not be people of integrity and of wholeness. And yet, we worship and we serve a God who has perfectly pursued us, has not given up on us, has entered into a covenant with us, and he is seeing it through. Are you resting in that? And then Paul concludes with these words. He says, if we have died with him, we, also, we will also live with him. I mean, there's been this old life, this old you, that when Jesus went to the cross and, and you have trusted in him, like that old self, it died. And there's that, now this, there's this new creation that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5. We will also, says, live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is what's coming for you. If we deny him, now there's warning here, he, will, he also will deny us. This means like an ultimate, no, I, I will not believe, I will not submit. But he says there are times if we are faithless, guess what? He remains faithful. It means like you doubt, you don't live this out perfectly, right? Which is all of us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself at his very core. God is faithful and he is loving. And he's compassionate and he pursues you and me even though we have chased other lovers, even though we have gone and said, God, I wanna do my own thing. I want myself to be fulfilled. I wanna prop myself up, my ego, my story. Jesus still pursues us. So in the brokenness that comes up in all this, know that there's a God that loves you. You have to look no further than the cross of Jesus to see the ways that all the promises of God find their yes in him with his arms stretched out. As Sally Lloyd-Jones would say in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's not the nails that held him there, but it was love. Jesus stayed. The ultimate act of faithfulness. And when we realize that, when that grips our hearts, it helps us become a people that can actually stay and be faithful and pursue. So I want to call us to a time of just prayer and reflection on this. What is it that you need to repent of? Take a moment. I'll lead us in prayer here, but take a moment to quiet your heart. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you that, what that is. There are things you need to receive, like we need to receive over and over again, the grace of God. Would you know that? Would you trust that? Would you remember this story? Would you rest in that? Would you rest in the faithfulness of God? Let me pray and give us a moment to respond. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for even difficult and challenging words. That it's all because of your grace that you, that you love us, that you care for us, that you pursue us enough to even speak difficult things. We thank you, though, that you don't just pile on and overwhelm us, but ultimately use these words to show us the hardness of our heart and how desperately we need you and your grace. And so, Spirit, I pray that right now you would be bringing conviction. God, we know the enemy would love to bring condemnation. That is never from you. So where it is 
good godly conviction. Let it lead to repentance. And Spirit, would you also do that work of just reminding us again and again of the grace of God so we might rest in that, we might celebrate that. And so as we spend a few moments just in some silent reflection and prayer, God, I ask that you would hear the prayers of your people and that you would be glorified in it and that we as your people, that we would experience a deep and abiding joy knowing that you love to hear from us as your kids and that you've been so faithful. May we rest in that, in Jesus' name, amen.